This is Michael Easley in context. There is only one Lord of the Rings. Only one who can bend it to his will. And he does not share power. Evidently not in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy by Tolkien, but in Peter Jackson's version, he has Gandalf the Great uttering those chilling words, there is only one king, and he does not share power. Welcome to In Context. This is Michael Easley. It's a delight to be with you today on the broadcast. In the Psalter, we have what we classify as royal psalms, that is, psalms that are pertaining to the king. And in Psalm 110, we read not only about the Davidic kingdom, but about the coming messianic kingdom. It's a powerful text, and let's jump right into Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most fascinating psalms in the Psalter as we know it. This is the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament. Each of the synoptics record Jesus using this psalm. And so it has layers of layers upon meaning, and I hope I can get you started in a study of it because it's an extraordinary passage. The royal psalms focus on um, the king. Classifications are always disputed by scholars and people who are smarter than me, but this one is pretty hard to escape that it's talking about the king, the royal psalm. The phrase, how could David say, if you just, let's just look at it right away here. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How can you say this? And this will be the question Jesus will pose to some of his more contentious uh, uh, examiners. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. How can David say this? How could Yahweh say this if this is the person of Yahweh speaking? Now, this is going to take us back to the Levitical priesthood a little bit. You know, Aaron, of course, is the the first priest, and from him and the tribe of Levi uh, comes the priesthood. And those priests were the ones who were the only ones who could offer sacrifice. You remember the story of Saul, where Saul is waiting on Samuel to come. And the people are getting impatient, and they're starting to leave. And so Saul takes his hand and initiates a sacrifice. This was not the role of the king. And this psalm will explain some of the reasons why. Uh, The context of the psalm is like many of them. It's hard to to nail it down. Dr. Alan Ross, who I was so privileged to have as a Hebrew professor back in my seminary days, one of the toughest professors I ever had, brilliant man, um, he would argue that this was probably after some battle. We can't pin it on a time stamp like we'd like to, but it's probably after some battle. Uh, the reference to Mount Olives, Zion, of course, when Jesus returns, this is the area he will come back to uh, establish his royal reign over all. David identifies the Lord here as exalted to the right hand of God. Again, authors Kyle and Dalich believe this may have been one of the last things David wrote. So when you read 2 Timothy and you have sort of this nostalgic thought of the elder statesman Paul and the last letter he wrote, it may well be this was one of the later uh, poems, songs, proses that David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote. It may parallel with some of 2 Samuel 23 stories, but we just don't know for sure. 
David is talking about some covenant promises that are not at play in reality, but they will come true in the eschaton, in the end times. And God is telling the psalmist here that his descendant will be God. So God is telling David in his particular world, there will come someone from your line that will be Lord. So when we think of these Old Testament figures, uh, please do not think of them as uh, thick-headed, dumb Jews. I believe they understood far more of the theology than we give them credit for, typically. And I think David, of course, understood this far better. I think David probably anticipated the Messiah more than most evangelical Christians. I think he understood as being the king of Israel what was at stake. And he knew the consequences of his own actions and the consequences of Israel's sin and stubbornness. Let's look at the psalm in some detail. First of all, the king is enthroned in heaven, verse 1. Let me read it again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, each of the uh, four go- three Gospels, Synoptics, talks about this. The first word here, says, is an unusual word. It's really the word oracle. I doubt any of your English Bibles have that word. It's a very rare word. And this is not just, it's not to say other scriptures and other psalms aren't as important. But the word oracle has a little more authority to it. Has a little more of a pronouncement, a proclamation, an anticipation. We might read it something cumbersome. Like, Yahweh gave an oracle to my Lord, that you will sit at my right hand. Uh, The right hand, of course, is the place of power, it's a place of dominion, it's a place reserved for one person. And the scripture often talks about the right hand of God being the power, and my friend Bob Tolson would say, and his left hand ain't too bad either. Um, But the right hand is the place of exalted dominion. It's the place that establishes the king. And the king is enthroned in heaven. When you have dominion over something, and this again goes back to God giving Adam dominion over the earth, you rule over it. It's yours. You are dispatched to be uh, the buck stops here. You have great authority and power And the psalmist is writing about this strange relationship. How does the Lord say to his Lord, who who can tell a person, sit here in this place? So all the rabbis are scratching their heads. All the New Testament scribes and Pharisees are scratching their heads about this particular passage. How does this play out for this future king? The usual part of this psalm is the word Lord. You know the word Adonai. Um, Adonai would be a word for Lord, for Master, for Sir. And we have the word Yahweh. The pious Jews, of course, did not say the word Yahweh because roughly translated it would be saying, I am. So there's a little axiom, what is written, what is read. What would be written times in the Old Testament would be Yahweh, and the pious rabbi would read Adonai because you didn't say, I am. Um, I don't know if any of you are fans of Chaim Potok. Any Chaim Potok fans in here? I love Chaim Potok. And he's, he's a Jewish guy out of New York that writes these wonderful uh, fictions, uh, but teaches a lot of historical, uh, historical fiction about the life of different Jews uh, in New York and different times. And he will, in one of his books, he writes, whenever the rabbi speaks, he'll say, Adonai, blessed be his name. Adonai, blessed be his name. Even though it's not in the text, because just saying the word 
caused the rabbis to pause. This was a sacred thing to them. They didn't say Yahweh, and they would, if you will, put vowels around the word that weren't part of Yahweh and made up the word Adonai. Now, it's not a made-up word, but it wasn't there in the verse because they didn't want to say I am. This particular word here is Adon without the plural ending. So the Hebrew writer, the Hebrew reader, if you grew up in a, in, a, in a synagogue and learned your Hebrew lessons, you scratch your head on this right away going, Adon? No, it's supposed to be Adonai. And it makes a, a complicated uh, beginning to, uh, you could really render the psalm, Yahweh says to my Lord. But they don't want to read it that way. None of our Bibles will translate it that way. They just put my Lord. Uh, some of your Bibles have the small caps, L-O-R-D, and others have a lowercase L-O-R-D. Do you know what I'm speaking of? Okay. If it has L, capital L, small O-R-D, uh, that's typically Adonai. If it has small caps, L-O-R-D, that's usually a uh, reference to the word Yahweh in the text. So your Bible might have that, but more than likely it's glossed over it. Yahweh is my Lord. The exalted king of a future king is to sit at my right hand, to have authority, and the way this is demonstrated is your enemies will be a footstool for your feet. When you subjugate your enemies, they're at your feet. The imagery here goes clear back to Genesis. Um, when In Genesis 3.15, you, when, when you crush your enemy, the metaphor is you put your foot on their neck. You've driven them to the dirt. And so this... Unusual psalm, God says to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies subjugated to your authority. So when, when, the, when the Jews would hear Jesus talk about this, and by the way, if you want the reference, if you look at Matthew twenty-two forty-four, you can cross-reference the other three synoptics, but that's where Jesus brings this up and causes his audience to be somewhat upset. Now, there are a sequence of prophecies here that uh, the best way to, to explain it before we go too far in the psalm is to run in your mind to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to give you a real high flyover of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the ascension and the coronation. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Psalm 2 parallels this as well. And so we're going to dip in and out of some of the theology of the book of Hebrews while we're going through this psalm. God's going to defeat his enemies. Now notice the little word until. It's an important future concept here. It marks something happening ahead of time. And uh, we're looking down the time uh, for this enemy. Enemy is also a fun word because if you know, in fact turn over to Genesis chapter 3.15 for just a second. And I want to show you the word it's not a word we use in our English language very often. This is when uh, Adam and the woman have uh, eaten the one prohibition in the garden. You can do you can eat anything you want, but just one. Don't touch this one. And of course they do. And as a result, God curses the serpent and he curses the ground. Please note he does not curse the woman and the man. Their environment, their context, their life is cursed, but they are not cursed because they are Coram Deo, their image of God, and he didn't curse uh, the imagio Deo. He did not curse the image of God. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and eat dust 
uh, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity. It's the same word we have in this passage of of Psalm 110.1 where he's going to make his enemies a footstool. So right away the good Jewish student would run in their brain going, wait a minute, that's the same enmity, that's the same enemy that began at the fall. And that's intentional, that's deliberate, that's not just happenstance, that it happens to be the same stem word. The word stool occurs six times in our Old Testaments. And it has to do, again, with those subjugated, with those who are conquered, uh, with those, Joshua 10.24, for example, when you conquer them, you are over them, and you subjugate them. The sharing of the Father's heaven is a hard concept. How does Yahweh let somebody sit beside him? So right away we have a theological collision. Who is this individual? And the rabbis would wrestle with, this must be Messiah, but David is the one penning this. So it gives a lot of them great uh, fodder to think about. Number one, the king is enthroned in heaven. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is celestial, this is in heaven, this is not on earth, until some future time when we're going to subjugate your enemies and you will crush them. So that's the opening line of the psalm. Another feature you find in the psalms, sometimes the opening strophes are the outline or the theology for the entire psalm. And that's really what you have here. This little phrase encapsulates all that we're going to see, and the psalmist is going to explain it. Number one, he's enthroned in heaven. Number two, the king will have power and authority to establish rule on earth. So we're moving from the celestial heaven to earth. Look at verse two. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, beautiful picture, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Let's take it apart a little bit at a time. God's going to give him a kingdom. I'm in heaven now, you're going to sit here for the time being, but there will come a time that you're going to rule in on earth. You will stretch forth your scepter from Zion. Don't think this is imagery here. He's talking about the holy city. We talked about the temple tabernacle complex, the temple complex, the city of David, Solomon's uh, expansion of this, the Herodian wall. Today if you see a picture of the so-called Dome of the Rock, that's in proximity to where the worship center of Israel was and will be at some future point. And all this is happening. God's telling Jesus, one day you're going to go back there and you're going to Stretch forth your strong scepter. Many word plays going on here. Uh, what did Moses do with a scepter, a staff, many times? He stretched it forth. When did he do that? Do you remember? Obviously the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, when else? The water out of the rock, where else? Do you remember? A battle and um, somebody's having to hold up his arms because his arms are heavy. The same words are used in the text about stretching forth. So what's the picture? You have power. And this scepter was also a word, stick is what it means, but there were 12 tribes, remember? Each of the 12 tribes had a unique staff. It's the same stem word. They had some type of identifier. We think about flags. You see a picture of, say, um, uh, the movie Braveheart or something like that. You'll see uh, flags that represented different armies, different groups. So envision that. Envision a group of Jews under the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. And each of the 12 tribes had a staff. Well, this is the one. 
This is the one over all the other staffs. And that's the one, the Messiah, verse 2, will stretch forth your strong scepter from the worship center of Zion, God's chosen people, God's covenant promises, and you will rule, look at this, in the midst of your enemies. You're not going to rule over your enemies. You're going to rule in the midst of them. So you see the eschatology starting to unfold in this psalm. A lot of pieces coming together with what David was writing, how much of it he understood. I don't know uh, what you think. I'm pretty convinced he got it. I think he knew a lot more than we give him credit for. Zion, of course, is the whole city of, of, of the Jews. It will be comforted in Isaiah chapter 30. Psalm 2 talks about the city of Zion. It will be holy. Nations will go to Zion to learn about Yahweh in Isaiah. Uh, Zion will never be troubled again, Isaiah says. There will be a day. I particularly believe Zion, Israel, plays a part. I don't pretend to believe the people who are there today who necessarily are called Jews are Jews. But I do believe there are Jews. Uh, estimates 3 to 4% of the world's population claim to be Jewish. I think that counts for a remnant. Somehow. Deuteronomy 30 is hard for me to get around. You may have different views of eschatology, but I kind of like W.A. Criswell's comment about why in the world are the Israelites still there? Everybody else, the Ninezites, the Perizzites, the Amalekites, the, you know, gigabytes, go down the list. Um, they're all gone. They're all gone. And there's dubious discussions about who the Palestinians are. Maybe they have some right. That's for better minds than mine to debate. But I believe God cares about that piece of dirt. Why else would it still be hanging on? I mean, you can't go but one direction, the Mediterranean Sea to the right, and then... And, uh, Going to fight to the other. To, you're going to fight to the east. You can't go anywhere. So the the, uh, the Jordan River forms a natural boundary land. You got Sea of Galilee. You got the Dead Sea at the bottom. You go down as far as the south area, almost the way to Egypt. It's not a big piece of land, and you're surrounded by enemies. Interesting piece of geography as you study it. This prophecy says that this king is going to be in the midst of his enemies. He's going to subjugate him, but he's going to rule when they are there in his midst. Verse 2. Listen to um, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15. The end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all the dominion, power, and authority. Listen again. Then the end will come. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here's the student of Gamaliel, here's Paul the Apostle, here's a brilliant Jewish rabbi mind who gets us. And he looks back at eschatology, he looks back at, at prophecy, and he sees it fulfilling, and the way God leads him to write the passages, the Bible is remarkably consistent. Uh, the people will offer themselves willingly into holy service. This is every pastor's misapplied verse that he dreams about. <laughs> pastors fantasize. People will volunteer freely. <laughs> I can't believe freely they would volunteer until... 
the day of your power. The word uh, is a little bit cumbersome to define. Uh, we're not real sure precisely. Volunteer does create some questions, but the rest of the verse fills in the problems. Uh, in, in the day when Jesus comes to have this scepter in the midst of his enemy, his people will come and rally to his side. Did that happen when Christ was here the first time? Of course not. They scattered like bugs when the light went on, as would have we. But there will be a day when God the Father from heaven will say, okay, Jesus, it's time for you to enter that realm again. And when you go down there, there will be a bunch of people who will freely volunteer to come be with you. Pretty exciting assembly of the future. Now, the, the volunteer freely does have language of sacrifice in it. Um, it's a complicated Hebrew word that probably means a volitional offering. This would make sense as we unpack the psalm a little more, you'll see it. But you remember we talked this morning about five different types of sacrifices, two which were mandatory for sin, three which for the most part were voluntary. Two of them were really voluntary. One sometimes were a sin and guilt offering. But the Jewish worshiper didn't have to do them. And the play here is we're coming out of the priesthood, out of the line of Aaron and Levi, but these people aren't coming to sacrifice for sin and guilt. They're freely volunteering on the day of your power. The love and devotion of the worshiper comes to follow Messiah. In holy array from the womb of dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The image is very rich here. Holy array and the womb of the dawn are two prepositional phrases that describe this group of volunteers. Holy array is a metaphor that gives us a picture of, uh, of clean linen, of clean worshipers. Of our array almost always has a ring of military tone to it. Uh, the military language comes in the psalm as well. And so we picture this huge group of, really, they're priests. They're servants who are coming to help this Messiah in the day he returns to Zion in the midst of his enemies. The youth of dew is a beautiful metaphor. If you've lived in a place that has a very dry climate, Arizona, some parts of California, Nevada, um, when, when you wake up in the morning and there's a dew on everything, it's really refreshing. And as soon as it evaporates, of course, the heat of the day comes. Dew was a metaphor for God sort of bathing and blessing his land uh, in the dry, arid months if there was a dew in the morning. And this picture is the womb. It's, it's a birth. So we see these two phrases explaining this group of volunteers. They're holy in their array. I think it's military. They're holy in their array, and it'll be like dew. It'll be like a birth. It'll be like a, a beautiful thing in the morning. It'll be amazing. It'll be refreshing to see uh, this thing happen. When Messiah comes, there will be a company of followers who will be a holy assembly who will come to help him. Not about you, but that gets me pretty juiced up. Now, this isn't going to be some political leader who comes on the scene and gets a little bit of coverage on CNN and a lot of coverage on Fox. It's going to be a person, when he comes on the scene, there will be a lot of people that will go to Zion. And there will be a gathering. And they will be holy. And they will be like a birth. I don't know if you watch some of these uh, world leaders, if you watch Chavez or Aminajab. 
Uh, they command an extraordinary power over people that is really hard for me to understand. How malevolent leaders intent on evil can do what they do. And if we think it confounds us why people would follow them, it should not surprise us why people would follow a good leader. We live in an interesting time politically, and this psalm will even speak to that a little bit. But I look forward to this king. I look forward to this leader. Because when he comes, there will be a holy array, and it will be a refreshing thing that we have not seen before, the dawning of a new day. I don't know how the current political landscape strikes you, whether it's national or global news. To me, it's very discouraging most of the time. As believers in Christ, however, we are looking forward to a different king and a different kingdom. Yes, we live as faithful citizens of two worlds, as Augustine said, but the world I'm most concerned about is not this world, but the next. You and I serve a king, a living king, and he's in the world today. This is Michael Easley, In Context.